Of the four New Testament Gospels, the book of John is, well, it's different. Like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, it presents a retelling of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. But John is notably distinct in what it emphasizes, and what it includes, and what it leaves out, in the order and structure of its account, and in the image of Jesus it constructs. One of the early church fathers, Clement of Alexandria, famously characterized the differences between the gospel narratives in this way. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote down the bodily things, the physical facts, whereas John, who was encouraged by his pupils and irresistibly moved by the Spirit, wrote a spiritual gospel. In this teaching series, we'll explore John's distinctive spiritual gospel, and along the way, we will reacquaint ourselves with his overtly theological retelling of Jesus, the Word made flesh, the Lamb of God, the Savior of the world. This is the spiritual gospel. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. I'm going to read uh, many of the same verses that Jory has read and then finish the, the story for you. This is John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of God for the people of God. So one of the absolute joys as a pastor is not only being asked to officiate weddings, but being able to attend the weddings of our people and our dear friends. And I don't know if you guys can relate to that, but when you go to these celebrations, they are sacred moments. And they're also oftentimes a lot of fun. We enjoy our time celebrating with friends and family, and there's moments in our lives when we're able to do that, and nothing uh, symbolizes what should be a joyous occasion more than a wedding. You go through the ceremony, you see the people that are just in love in that moment, and they leave, and there's celebration, and there's cheering, and sometimes there's dancing, so much dancing nowadays. It's all choreographed, and people just really go the extra mile in how they want to first present themselves. But then you go to the reception, and at the reception is usually a time of dancing and good food and good drink and people's company. Now, I know some of the introverts in the room, you're flashing back to those moments where you're assigned a table and you look around and you seem to be one of the only ones that you know at the table, and that might be a fear-inducing moment. But for many of you, in in those reception types of, of atmospheres, you're able to celebrate uninhibited on behalf of the people that you are there to celebrate. 
It's not so different in the ancient world, specifically weddings in first century Jewish culture. A lot of times these were week-long celebrations where people would gather for the wealthy or the um, the, the people with a lot of money at the time, they might even invite the entire town or city together for a free meal and dancing and singing and, and partying in the, the holiest of uh, ways that we can use that term. And they're all just coming to one place to celebrate together. Even the people that weren't so blessed financially would still invite their closest friends and as many people as they could. There's one rabbinic text actually that, that um, makes up this invitation where someone was wanting to invite not only their friend, but the friend's wife and the hired servants of the house and also the dog if the individual wanted to bring their dog. And I don't know if that would be much of a party for me. I'm just thinking about Porter and he would be causing too much problems for me to enjoy myself there. But this was a moment within first century Jewish culture where celebration was happening just setting the context for this particular wedding ceremony and festivities and, and, um, and partying. It was people surrounding this, this couple and this moment in their life that was meant to be a joyous occasion. But in the storytelling, there's a problem here. And the problem is first enunciated by Jesus's mother, who says to her son, they've run out of wine. There's no more wine. And for us, that might not seem like that big of a deal. Perhaps we've thrown a dinner party before and we thought that we prepared enough food and, and we didn't really. And then you had to get some stuff out of, the, out of the pantry or what have you. Whenever we have these corporate dinners, like I just have my car started and out in the parking lot, ready to go to Little Caesars in the off chance that we need about 10 to 12 hot and readies, you know, because they're cheap and they're delicious. Don't judge me. But if we need to go do that because we didn't have enough people to bring food for the potluck, and I kind of wear this badge of shame and, and guilt as I drive over to the Little Caesars and eat a, piece, uh, you know, a whole pizza in my car before I come back and deliver the rest due to the stress. But anyway, they have no wine, she says. And this is a problem because in the ancient Near Eastern culture, um, there was a lot of stigma surrounding what the host family was able to do. Uh, one commentator, Craig Keener, says the groom was facing a potential social stigma that could make him the talk of his guests for years to come. This wasn't just a potluck where they ran out of food. It was actually supposed to be the case where a Jewish family could supply the needs well beyond uh, the length of stay of these people. Another scholar, N.T. Wright, says running out of wine was not just inconvenient, but a social disaster and disgrace. The family would have to live with the shame of it for a long time to come. And even beyond that, bride and groom might regard it as bringing bad luck on their married life. Finally, there's a text from the Babylonian uh, Talmud, which is a Jewish collection of writings, rabbinical writings, that says, he who presses his fellow to come as his guest but does not intend to receive him properly, or in other words, does not have enough food or drink to accommodate the needs of this individual, that person is counted among thieves. In Jewish culture, this was not a small problem. This is a big problem. And as Jesus' Jesus's mother is announcing to him, they have run out of wine. She is announcing that these people are on the hook for now becoming a laughingstock within the community and potentially taking on or incurring the shame and guilt that comes along with not being able to be good um, hosts of the people that have gathered 
to celebrate. This is also uh, heightened because the host in our text is one of high social and economic status. I don't know if you caught some of the details, but the fact that this family has servants and the fact that this family has not only servants, but a, a master of ceremonies, a master of the banquet. Now, this could actually be one of two different things. Sometimes when people show up to your household, you can dub someone to be the master of the banquet. So if we're all having a potluck dinner and I look around and I can entrust the fun and also the... Uh, provision of the people to one individual, I'll look around the room and say, Amanda Hill is the master of the banquet. And then she will arise and become that person in the midst of this space. Or it might be one of the hired hands, the servants that's serving in this person's household that will be dubbed. This is their job. But we see that they have servants and they have a master of the banquet. It could be showing the high social status of these people. And also the fact that there's six stone jars for ritual purification demonstrates that these people are pretty well-to-do. So it is no small problem when the wine begins to go missing. There's a couple of different ways in which people have thought about this problem, uh, namely two. And the first one, I think, is more just for our fun to discuss it and not necessarily one that we should hang our interpretive hat on. But some people think that when Jesus shows up with his entourage and the people surrounding him, his newfound disciples, Jesus rolls up to the wedding and the disciples just follow him wherever he goes. They're not necessarily invited guests, despite what the NIV translation is leading us to believe. Jesus' mom and Jesus have these invites, and it's just assumed that Jesus' disciples will go wherever he goes, and it could be the fact that Jesus has rolled up unbeknownst to the host family with his new crew, and Jesus' mom says, what are you doing? They're running out of wine because all of your disciples are drinking it. Get it together, Jesus! This is what is happening potentially in this text because when you go to someone's home, especially if you're going to a wedding celebration, you are entrusted to take something with you. In fact, some Jewish texts say that the wedding gift is almost like a loan that you give to someone and they will pay you back. You don't just go and mooch off of the system. You go and you give a gift, and the only thing that doesn't have to be paid back is the wine that you may or may not bring. And some people, experts in first century Jewish partying, have said, uh, yes, that's a real title, I guess, professor of first century Jewish partying. They have said that Jesus is rolling up with too many people, and they're drinking too much wine because you know what Jesus is all about. And that's one way that people have thought about this passage. I think it's just fun to, to throw out there. Nobody can affirm it. Nobody can really deny it. It might be the case, but it's probably not the case. Maybe a better way of reading this passage is to see Jesus' mom saying, they have no more wine, and I know you can do something about it. So do it. Either way, I'm really reading into Jesus' mother, and she's like kind of, Jesus, do what you can do. I've seen you do crazy stuff, and now I need you to get something done for this family. I don't know if you have any sort of points of contact there with your mothers, but Jesus here is, is hearing this, and Mary is demonstrating herself to be one that has faith that Jesus is going to, to act. One scholar says that she is demonstrating the chutzpah of faith. That's fun to say. You should try it. The chutzpah of faith. Sounds good, doesn't it? Rolls right off the back of the throat. 
the chutzpah of faith where Mary is asserting herself to say, Jesus, I know what you're capable of doing and I need you for the sake of this family to do it. Nobody knows the relationship between Mary and Jesus and the people that they are going to celebrate. This is one of the notorious ambiguities of John's gospel. He does not seem to care about these details whatsoever. It might be the case that Jesus is rolling up with his entourage and they're drinking too much wine. I will go ahead and give you a side note here. We talk a lot about um, the Jewish people of this time liking to party. What you might not know, though, is whenever they sit down for a meal, they're adding water to the wine that they are drinking. They're diluting it either um, two to one or even four to one in the quantities of which they're, they're drinking. There is a stigma in Jewish culture against drunkenness, and these people weren't just going to ragers. They were attempting to live within the boundaries of good social acceptability, even though Amanda Hill, as the master of the banquet, has noticed that most people serve the good stuff until everybody gets a bit tipsy. And then when their systems are down a touch, it doesn't matter what you give them. So then they bring out the bad stuff here. So there might be something to the effect that they weren't trying to go and get sloshed in public. However, there was something to, to the effect of people um, potentially becoming inebriated. Does, that, does what I just said make sense? Okay, great because I, I got a little lost in my thoughts there. They have no more wine. Jesus do something about it. One scholar says that in this uh, cultural moment, depending on the host family's setup, you would probably have the women separate from the men, and most of the women would be hanging around the food preparation so that Mary might know something before everybody else about the status of the wine. Again, Craig Keener says, women sometimes had access to privileged information not spoken in the company of men, and perhaps most relevant in our passage, women were typically in charge of food preparations. So when Mary says they have no more wine, she's speaking something that not everyone else in attendance knows. Everyone else in attendance has been served one or two times. They're, 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 it's not like they're waiting for their first cup of wine to come out, but Mary knows they've got too many people it might be because of Jesus's hoodlum disciples, or it might just be because the host family has overextended themselves, and now they're on the hook for potential social disgrace. And because Mary knows this, she asks her son of God, son Jesus, to do something about it. Jesus's response is troubling, mainly because we import our 21st century American understanding into this passage. And I don't know about you, but I import my own tone into this passage. Again, Jesus, you better get something done. Woman, what, what does this have to do with me, woman? I don't know if you've ever tried that with your mother. <laughs> I wouldn't recommend it. But you can hear the exasperation, perhaps, in Jesus' tone, even though it's not in the text. But, but he says, woman, why do you involve me? And scholars have spilled a lot of ink as to why Jesus is referring to his mom as woman. 
Throughout the book of John, this term comes up, and actually this term comes up at the end of the book once again when Jesus is talking to his mother. It's not necessarily a sign of disrespect. It is odd, though, that Jesus is addressing his mother with such terms, but don't import kind of like this, woman, get out of my face. I don't think that's where Jesus is coming from here, but he does say, very literally, he says, what is this to me and to you? The Greek there got butchered. I forgot to press the button, so you're just going to have to deal with it for a couple of slides. But literally, this text says, woman, what to me and to you? This is called a Semitism because this is standard Hebrew lingo that's being updated in the Greek for this new audience. And Jesus is just saying this, this isn't our problem, as Jory's text says. Woman, what does that, what does this situation, what does the fact that they have no wine have to do with me or even the statement, woman, this is no concern of mine. This isn't my issue, this isn't my problem, this isn't my deal, is what Jesus seems to be saying to his mom in this moment. And this is typical of Jesus throughout the Gospel of John. He's presented with, with times in which he can minister to people, but he almost backs up and plays the, the defensive role, like, you don't tell me what to do. I listen to my dad, and my dad tells me what to do and when to do it. So you guys just better relax a moment. I'll give you a couple examples. One comes from John chapter 4, when Jesus is, is dealing with a royal official, and the royal official, his son, is sick. And in need of, of uh, help, it says, when this man heard that Jesus had arrived in Galilee from Judea, he went to him and begged him, that's Jesus, to come and heal his son who was close to death. And Jesus says, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will never believe. It's an odd response. The man comes back, though, and says, sir, Come down before my child dies. And then Jesus relents and says, go, your son will live. And on the way home, the royal official has messengers who are coming to him. And they say, your son is alive and well. And they have this interchange about what time did this take place. And they recognize that it happens at the time when Jesus says, your son will live. Another weird story in John chapter 7. I find this one um, more more. Interesting, I think. Jesus is going, uh, or people are wanting Jesus to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Feast of Tabernacles. It says, when the Festival of Tabernacles was near, Jesus' brothers said to him, leave Galilee and go to Judea so that your disciples there may see the works that you do. No one wants uh, to become a public figure by acting in secret. Since you are doing these things, show yourself to the world. And then it goes on to say, for even his own brothers did not believe him. Therefore, Jesus tells them, my time is not yet here. You guys go to the festival. I'm going to stay home. Later, in verse 10, it says, however, after his brothers had left for the festival, he also went, not publicly, but in secret. So the brothers come and they say, hey, let's go down to Jerusalem to celebrate this, um, this feast because you can't just keep doing these things in secret. People need to know you. People need to see you. And he says, I'm not going. You guys go. And once they leave and they go, Jesus sneaks off in the middle of the night to also go down there. So Jesus is, is, is it's being confronted with these issues or these things that he can do. The same sort of thing happens uh, later in John chapter 11, where Jesus hears about his friend Lazarus, who is sick. And he says, I'm not going. And he waits until Lazarus 
is already dead and he doesn't show up until Lazarus has been dead for three to four days. And he has these interchanges with Mary and Martha. They say, if you had just been here sooner, we wouldn't be in this spot. And Jesus, it seems like when he's confronted with possibilities and opportunities in the book of John, sometimes he backs away and says, I work not on your time, but I work on my father's time. And it hasn't been allowed for me to do this yet. This is why Jesus is saying, it's not time yet, woman. Why are you concerning me with this? Again, Craig Keener says, the primary reason for the rebuff must be that Jesus' mother does not understand what this sign will cost Jesus. In a sense, he says that it starts him on the road to his hour. It is the cross. It's interesting when Jesus starts into this, this ministry, he's moving step by step closer to the cross. Every time the family drives over to mom and dad's house, uh, Abe is in the back and he says, dad, are we getting closer? And I say, every second we are in this car, we are getting closer to granny's house. We are moving in that direction. And it's the same with Jesus here to some degree that when he begins this ministry and he begins to move into this calling that he has on his life, his hour is becoming more and more imminent when finally it will be reached at the cross. It's interesting that Mary shows up two times in John's gospel. One time here in chapter two, we're at this wedding and, and she's like, Jesus, you better do something because I know you can. And then she kind of disappears from the scene until the cross. And Jesus sees Mary while he's hanging on the cross and he sees her with the beloved disciple. We'll talk about that later. But he says, woman, here's your son. And then to the beloved disciple, behold, your mother I don't think that the author of the book of John is, is, is a fool. And to put these two stories, one in the beginning and one at the end, with some of the same verbiage, he's, he's, he's attempting to link these stories together, first with Mary's coaxing of Jesus to do something at the wedding, and then Jesus' care for his mother at the very end. It's also interesting to me, and this one's just kind of coming to me uh, over the last hour or so. I haven't done any sort of study or thought on it. But in this first text, there's a bit of separation. Jesus says, woman, what does this have to do with me? And throughout the gospel, Jesus seems to say, my family are the people that do the will of my father. My family is not the people that are flesh and blood tied to me. My family is not just mom and the brothers that we used to celebrate festivals with. It's the people that are engaged and following God and me in, in, a, in a tangible way. And there's a separation in chapter two. We don't see mom again until the very end. And Jesus, even in his moment of pure, unadulterated suffering, attempts to care for his mother. I don't believe that this is the only time that he has seen her in, 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 in real time, but in the book of John, it, it is. And it's almost like this this restitution and this, this reconciliation. Mom, there was separation here back then. Remember at that party, I was kind of ticked at you. Remember, I care for you. And this guy who's one of my best guys, he will be with you for what will be for you the most difficult of days. 
He's my beloved disciple, and now he can be your beloved son as I'm going off to do other things. Again, I haven't put a lot of thought into that, but I think it, it, it's worth considering. She says, do whatever he tells you to the servants. She knows deep down that this boy is special. She knows deep down that he can do something if he wants to. She knows deep down that all she has to do is say to him, honey, they're running out of wine. And she knows that that's enough, regardless of how he responds initially. She knows that that will be enough for him to do something because she knows that he cares about people. And then she, she kind of primes the pump and says, whatever he, he tells you to do, do that. You could preach a long time on that response from, from Jesus' mother. Whatever he tells you to do, do it. For many of us in the room right now, we might be running from something that Jesus is telling us to do. I know it's extremely difficult to deduce whether it's from Jesus or whether it's from the burrito that you ate before you went to bed. But I know that some of you, you've got a call. You've got an anointing if we're gonna get super spiritual. You've got something in your life, some talents and some gifts and abilities. You have a sphere of influence that no one else has and that Jesus is calling you and ushering you into acting upon it. And maybe you need to spend some time with the words from one of the earthly figures that has spent the most time with Jesus when she says, whatever he tells you to do, do it because I've seen the benefits of what that can be for you. And I've seen how that works out for people in your situation. If you will just do what he tells you to do, you will see things that you cannot believe. So this launches us into the, the miracle proper. Uh, Marianne May Thompson says, the gospel hardly narrates the sign itself. It describes no action of Jesus, such as praying to God or touching or speaking to the jars or the water. Jesus gives only a simple command to the servants to fill the water jars. That is a theologically loaded um, command, but we're going to leave that there for a second. He says to the servants, fill up the water jugs, these six stone jars that are off to the side that may have uh, some water removed from them, fill them up. We don't know how. We don't know how long it takes. We don't know how empty they are. But once they finally get them filled to the brim, he says, now draw some of that water out and take it to the master of the banquet. And this is when in, in this moment, and some people would disagree if, if the water that's spooned or drawn out of these um, cylinders is all wine or just the water that is drawn out of the cylinders. People like to talk about things that they have no idea and, and they can't prove. But here we see um, the wine being brought to the master of the banquet who then comes with this line, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. I do have one anecdote that's not gonna be great, but I'm gonna tell you anyway, because what we did uh, over this past weekend, we decided to volunteer at the Good Beer Festival because some of us like to drink beer and also because we got a free co-ed, non-competitive, competitive kickball team registration out of it. And all God's people said, amen. That's $300 right there. And it was fun too. And our job was to pour beer for people in their little taster glasses that they would get when they um, had their tickets at the door or whatever, but you could tell as the time was moving on, the level to which these people 
began to not care what they were tasting, so much so that some people would frequent the booths. Josh and Amanda, you know what I'm talking about. They would say, and Kate, they would say, I don't care. What, most people would come and say, I'd like to try the pumpkin beer, or I'd like to try the cider, or I'd like to try this or that. And they would just say, I don't care. And you knew at that moment, I'm thinking like, yeah, that makes sense. This is not a proverb that this guy is doing. It's just, it's just uh, inductive reasoning that most people bring out the good stuff first and then after people are kind of in a place that, that might not be where their palate is super refined, you can bring out the boxed stuff, if you will. And this is what's happening here. This text, though, is not about drinking. If I can just make one real clarification for the people in the room, and you can take this to your parents, you can take this to your people, you can take this wherever you want to go. This text is not about whether or not Christians should be able to have a glass of wine or a beer with their dinner. This is not what this text is attempting to tell us. You can't use the argument, well, Jesus drank wine, so I'm going to have whatever I want to have too. That's not what this passage is about. Biblically speaking, it seems as though the thing that puts us on the hook is intoxication. And I know that steps on people's toes. And if you have more sensibilities where you would say, I don't want to involve myself with drinking alcohol because I've seen some of the negative uh, effects of that, great, go with that. But this text is not, either, is not here to either legitimize or illegitimize how Christians participate in the act of drinking. In fact, in this story, it says what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee, this is the text that, that concludes this passage, it was the first of the signs through which he reveals his glory. John has seven signs throughout his book that demonstrate who Jesus is. And it says, as a result, his disciples believed in him. Now remember, they've given up everything to follow him. So this might be they believed in him more. Their initial belief was affirmed because now they see this guy doing stuff that no one else can do. It's a revelation of Jesus's glory. If we go back to the text uh, from, from last week, it's, it's heavens ripping open and the angels ascending and descending upon Jesus to see the thing, to see how God is, is acting upon his son and acting through his son and acting to give a revelation of heaven upon earth here and now and in this moment. This is a secret miracle that not everybody knows about, that only the people that are drawing the water and putting it into these stone pitchers know what's going on here. And Jesus's mom know what's going on here. But for them, the heavens are ripping open and the angels are ascending and descending and people are beginning to see a glimpse of Jesus that affirms who he is at the very core of his being. Now, attempting to land the plane here, I do think, while I say that this text is not about whether or not we should be drinking people, I, I trust that you use your good judgment and your wisdom and, and prayer and the leading of the Holy Spirit to come to those conclusions. This text does have an edge upon which it sits because Jesus, the wine that he makes, is the good stuff. For the master of the banquet, they say, this isn't usually normal where you bring out the best wine at the end. And it demonstrates a truism about Jesus that what he sets himself to is above and beyond anything that we can imagine in our minds. I don't think it's a mistake that Jesus makes really good wine for these people. 
It would be weird, in my opinion, if Jesus made really gross wine and people didn't want to drink it, but that's not what we see in this passage. And not only is he making good stuff, it's the abundance of the good stuff. In fact, it's anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of beautiful, luscious, flavorful red wine. I thought it would be really funny to queue up UB40, and every time I said anything about wine, then Josh would hit a button, and it would phase us into red, red wine. So just be blessed by that, and as I say wine, just imagine that on a loop in your mind as we're, as we're preaching through this here. But it's not just the fact that it's good, it's the fact that it's completely abundant, and it's moving people into a new phase of understanding of what Jesus is initiating here and now in this place. God, in a sense, is doing a new thing, and he is doing that new thing through Jesus, his son, and people are just now beginning to see it. In something as mundane, perhaps, as really good wine that is occupied in six stone water jars where you could have anywhere from 120 to 180 gallons of Jesus's best stuff. God is doing a new thing through his son. Now, I do want to say this, and this is how we're going to conclude this, because I think you could, you could parse this out, and people have said that this is indicative of the messianic age that's showing up. There's all kinds of motifs and images throughout the Old Testament about wine flowing from mountaintops at the end of time, and the fact that Jesus is doing this miracle, it might be pushing us in that sort of motif or, or that sort of direction where we say the end is becoming the present, and Jesus is taking what is to come and bringing it here in the now. Some people would call this realized eschatology. The end is here and now, and Jesus is giving us the first fruits, quite literally, of that. He's bringing in the messianic age, and things are turning, and God is doing a new thing, and God is fulfilling all this Old Testament prophecy about things like wine and the goodness of the age. However, I want to focus on something different. This is something that has been sitting with me this entire week and beyond as I'm thinking about this passage. It's six stone water jars that are used for ritual purification and cleansing. At this time, uh, it would be necessary for people that were getting ready to eat to wash their hands. It would also be necessary for people to ritually purify uh, the, the plates and the cups and the, the service utensils that were being used to have something on hand that would be able to purify all of these, these things in accordance with Jewish law. The fact that this person had stone jars is important because according to Old Testament law, stone jars are less likely to become impure, whereas clay jars or other things sort of that, they can become uh, impure and you have to smash them and get rid of them. But these people had stone jars here and they were filled to whatever degree, which, which seems to imply that these people were uh, law-abiding Jewish citizens that cared about these ritual purifications. But when Jesus shows up, when Jesus shows up to bring about the good wine and the massive amount of good wine, when Jesus becomes someone who does something new on behalf of God, he looks over to the corner and he says, those six stone jars that you guys use for your ritual purification, that's what I want. And that's what I want to fill with this new, beautiful wine. Jesus, in a sense, repurposes the implements of purification because he values human need above ritual requirement. 
He didn't care as much about people walking into this space and washing their hands. He didn't care so much about people jumping through the ritual hoops. What he cared about was the family that was on the hook for social disgrace. And he says, this is, this is good and important, but for the time being, what we need to do is we need to focus on preserving this family and caring for them, even if that goes against Jewish purification laws. In other words, the shame, the guilt, the rejection, the marginalization, the dissatisfaction of the guests upon which the hosts were on the hook for all of these things. Jesus, when his mom says they have no wine, he begins to think that these are the things that matter the most, and I do not want anyone on my watch to suffer, to experience these things when I can step in and do something to fix the problem. Finally, Craig Keener says, preventing a social affront to his host or the dissatisfaction of the guests was more critical to John's picture of Jesus than the affront offered to the tradition of purification by water. What we see in this passage is Jesus, who, yes, is initiating a new moment in the history of the Jewish people, who is saying, the heavens are ripping open, and if you just lock eyes with me, and if you just see what I am doing, you will see God moving us into a new era, a new phase. Something new is happening, and I'm going to demonstrate that by doing this miracle at a wedding in Cana where I'm taking the six stone jars of ritual purification, and I'm making them wine. They are no longer able to be used for this moment of ritual purification. Instead, I have something else in mind for them. And the thing that I have in mind for them is to prevent this family from social shame and marginalization. There's a couple things that we can take away from this. One is the very clear and very um, John-focused teaching. Jesus is showing himself to be son of God. He's showing himself to be Messiah. He's showing himself to be the one that everyone is waiting for, the one who even his mom knows he can do these miracles. However, Jesus is also one who is showing himself, and I hope that this lands with you all. He's showing himself to, one, to be one who cares about people, about the way that they uh, live in this world, about the disaster that they might face and the way that he can prevent some of that. If you're anything like me, that last sentence or that last little paragraph might not land with you because your life doesn't demonstrate that. You have suffered through immeasurable difficulties. You have lost people that are so close to you. Your prayers have gone potentially unanswered. I don't have any sort of way to be a bomb to your soul other than to continue to submit that Jesus cares. And the stories that we see in these gospels demonstrate him to be one who will go to bat for people in what could be a potentially difficult situation for them. Gosh, I hope that that means something to you. And I hope that God's people that have felt that and seen that and experienced that can be a witness for others in this place who might not agree, who might not have experienced that, to be able to talk to one another. As I was talking in the beginning, where it's not always that we are the, the first or the most eager to believe these things, but in the midst of community, when that voice is raised, when those stories are heard, when people begin to, sit, to give their testimonies and to tell others what Jesus has done, perhaps 
that might be something that we can hold on to and wait in the midst of Jesus for him to show up in our own lives. In this story of Jesus and the miracle at Cana, he shows himself to be one who not only brings the good stuff, but he brings it in abundance and he brings it to people in need. Thanks for listening to this week's teaching from the Restoration Project. If you live in the Salisbury area, we invite you to join us for one of our weekly services on Sunday evenings at 5.30 p.m. Whatever your story, there's room for you here. If you'd like more information on TRP, please visit our website at www.restoresby.org. And for previous sermons, check out our SoundCloud page at www.soundcloud.com forward slash restoresby or subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or Stitcher. See you next week.